My name is Talia Smith, and you're listening to Season 2 of Once Upon a Time, a storytelling podcast. There are stories all around us. We tell stories every day. We watch movies, we consume internet content, and we talk to people. How could we communicate without stories? I think it's impossible. This season, my friends and I will be telling stories that will leave you spooked uneasy, or even on the edge. Join us for Once Upon a Time, a storytelling podcast, season two. This episode was recorded in Maryland and New Jersey and tells a possibly familiar tale about one of England's most notorious monarchs. Enjoy! Hello, everyone, and welcome to the podcast. I'm so excited that y'all chose to listen to Once Upon a Time, a storytelling podcast today. And I'm also excited for you to listen to our guest. Today, our guest is Bianca Belfiore. Bianca has a fascination with obscure medieval coins, science fiction, and history trivia. While she's often teased for these interests by her friends, she has turned them into a career in museums and has worked for both sides of today's topic at the King Richard III Visitor Center and the Henry VIII's Hampton Court Palace. Another fun fact about Bianca is we met in the nerdiest way at Drew University's That Medieval Thing. Say hi, Bianca. Hello. Thank you for having me. Thank you for coming on the show today. We're going to be talking about a topic that Bianca knows a lot about. Before we get rolling, give us three fun facts about our topic today. Okay. So our first fun fact is that Richard III has been remembered as one of England's most villainous kings. All of the wrongdoings he's accused of, the most heinous, is the one with the least evidence. Richard III was the last English king to die in battle, and with his death came what is possibly England's most famous royal dynasty, the Tudors. And his paradise, his resting place, was literally paved to put up a parking lot. Paid paradise and put up a parking lot. Cool. All right. So why don't we introduce this story of Richard III? So it's 2013, and I'm watching a documentary with my mom called Richard III, The King in the Car Park. That's awesome. I think I saw that documentary as well with my dad. Archaeology documentaries are something my mom and I share. Either it's a Discovery Channel documentary that's Seems less educational and more sci-fi conspiracy theory. This documentary was my first exposure to the University of Leicester, archaeological services, which were part of the excavation. And all I had known about a Richard III at the time was that he was at the Battle of Bosworth and he was a malicious king. Fair enough. In 2018, I started my master's program at the University of Leicester. And as a way to get to know the city and the people outside my program, I volunteered at the King Richard III Visitor Center, which was a really great site built over where the remains were discovered in 2012. And all the workers and volunteers there had so much knowledge about Richard's history and everyone had their own interests. We had a weapons fanatic, a fan of Henry VII, and someone interested in politics, so much more. I think it's really great that you're able to get to know the city in that way. Like, what a cool opportunity. And it it was definitely to learn the city, but also I came out of it with so much knowledge about Richard III that you just don't get beyond these well-established stories of who he was. So before I go into that. Yeah, let's talk a little bit about why this story now and why, why are we talking about a king who lived like 600 years ago in 2020 when the, our, our modern world seems like a mess? Why are we talking about a, a historical mess? 
What's really interesting about Richard III is that his story exemplifies the power of political misinformation, which is a very prevalent topic in American politics. Then we also have a lot of discussion on fake news right now. We have a lot of discussion on what is a hoax and what isn't a hoax. This isn't about modern politics, though. In Richard III's case, his legacy was rewritten by the Tudors, who set out to create an image of him that bolstered their claim to the throne. Historians often discuss him in one of two lenses. There's the white legend or the black. The white tale is very sympathetic and the black is aggressively against him. And because of this misinformation, some of what we talk about today will come straight from the Tudor books on Richard III, but a lot of it will be substantiated accounts about Richard. And I will try to not lean too far into one side or the other and stay very true to the facts about Richard III. Awesome. Yeah, I'm, I'm excited. I think this will be really cool, very relevant to today. A lot of our episodes this season revolve around the idea of legacy and what is a legacy and who creates your legacy. And I think Richard III is just another example of how many people go into creating your legacy, how you really have nothing to do with it. It's the people who come after you that really decide how you are remembered. So with that being said, let's start off with my favorite phrase, once upon a time. Once upon a time, in far away Fotheringhay Castle, on October 2nd, 1452, King Richard III was born. King Richard was the youngest son to survive. He had three older brothers living, Edmund, Edward, and George, and he would outlive them all. His birth is said to have been anything but natural. King Richard III was the last king of the Plantagenet dynasty, which ruled England from 1154 to his death. He came to be remembered for neither his family loyalty or his military prowess, but as a usurper king, so wicked and evil, his body was deformed and corrupted at heart. He killed his own blood to satiate his lust for power. Really quickly, for those who don't know, what is a usurper? What does that mean? Usurping is the wrongful or illegitimate seizure of power. So the usurper is someone who seizes power. Awesome. Great. So remember that word, usurper, as we go through the story today. Continue. Richard III's birth would become a legend in and of itself, even after he died. Historians in his own era wrote that Richard was born with teeth and in an unnatural position with his feet first. Oh, so he was a... He was a breached baby, so not as uh, mysterious today. I love how some of the witchy, witchier things, some history actually have a very scientific reasoning when you look back at it. Other historians of the time suggested that he was the product of a two-year gestation period, born with teeth and long, dark hair. Nevertheless, the telling of his difficult birth indoors and was incorporated into William Shakespeare's Richard III. Now, before we get too far into who Richard III is, let's kind of debrief about the world he was living in at the time. Let's talk a a little bit about the War of the Roses so we can get some context to Richard III's story. The War of the Roses was, in short, a family feud turned into an English war to determine which side of the Plantagenet family were the rightful rulers of England. These two families were the Lancasters and the Yorks. People in the kingdom took sides. Richard was a York, so for the sake of the story, we'll be Yorkists. Okay, sounds good. Let's go. Let's roll with that. <laughs> All right. So, from what I understand, because I'm not as uh, I haven't spent as much time with Richard III as you have, but from my understanding. His oldest brother, Edmund, was never king, but it was his second brother, Edward, who ruled England. Is that correct? That is correct. Edmund had died in battle along with their father, 
Richard Duke of York, who was the front runner of the Yorkist claims to power during the reign of Henry VI. So Edward ruled England after winning a battle against the Lancastrian king, Henry VI. The thing with the rulers in this period is that they would flip-flop between two families. Edward, though, was able to hold his crown until his death. Ooh, good for Edward. Rock on. I guess if you're a Yorkist, if you're a Lancaster, then you probably would feel very differently. Richard was always loyal to his brother Edward and was rewarded for his military prowess. When he was nine years old, Edward IV gave Richard the title, the Duke of Gloucester. And 10 years later, he was a prominent soldier in Edward's army and a key defender of the North border with Scotland. Richard was so loyal to his brother that his motto was loyute milie, which means loyalty binds me. And that is still engraved on his, his current burial. Well, that's kind of ironic. (laughs) On April 9th, 1483, King Edward IV died. Richard was 31. When he learned of his brother's death, he was in the north monitoring the border wars with Scotland, and the king's 12-year-old heir was far away in Ludlow Castle. That is Edward IV's young son, Edward. So can we just call him Young Edward so we don't get confused because everyone decided to name their children the same thing? (laughs) Yes, we will call him Young Edward. Awesome. King Edward died. Young Edward is living far away. And Richard is near the border with Scotland. Correct. Okay. According to Edward IV's will, Richard would be Lord Protectorate, a very important job that could impact the future of the country. But at the time of Edward IV's death, a council in London decided to let young Edward rule rather than have a Lord Protector. But Richard was a man with a plan, and he was determined to be Lord Protectorate. Now, really quickly, what is Lord Protectorate? What does that mean? It's a role that comes into place when a child inherits the throne. Lord Protector would step in and function as king until the child heir was old enough to claim the throne for himself. Okay, and that term would later be regent, which is where the regency era takes takes its name from. Right, now that we got all that figured out, what happened? How is Richard a man with a plan? What does he do to become Lord Protectorate? Or may even say king? It was on the journey to London from the north that Richard made his first moves towards usurping the throne. He takes possession of his young nephew, Edward, who is at this point uncrowned, but Edward V. Okay. And arrives in London on May 4th, which was the day he, Edward, young Edward, was supposed to be crowned. So the first step was to delay his coronation. Richard then declares himself protector, making him the most powerful man in England. And at this point, it is still until his nephew is old enough to become king himself. Okay, that kind of reminds me of The Office when Michael Scott goes, I declare bankruptcy. Then I was like, that's not how it works. Feels like a medieval version of that. (laughs) I didn't say it. I declared it. (laughs) Right, exactly. That's Richard. Richard's Michael Scott. (laughs) All right. So he's declared himself protectorate. He, for lack of a better term, kidnapped his nephew. What next? And then he puts his nephew in the Tower of London. Yikes. That's never a good sign. (laughs) He says this is for his own protection. And there's one thing I want to point out. When a royal was put into the Tower of London, we think of it as a dungeon, because it was. The primary function of the Tower of London was a fortress and a prison. But Edward, young Edward, is not in a jail cell. He's in apartments. He has servants. He's well cared for, but he's unattainable. You can't come into contact with him. 
And by doing that, he's creating the separation of power, making him the focus. So he is, in a way, quarantined, but I'm chow, from the rest of society. And he doesn't really have contact with the outside world. But he's not in a cage. He's just, he's just kind of quarantined off. The next step was for Richard and his allies to declare his late brother's marriage illegitimate. Through making the marriage illegitimate, you also make young Edward and all the other children of Edward IV and his wife illegitimate. So you take away their claim to the throne. Yikes. That is brutal. (laughs) Such a jerky move. With young Edward and his younger brother, Richard, ineligible to be king, Richard is the only person left who could legally take the throne. Okay, because he has... We mentioned before that there was another brother involved. So at this point, all of Richard's older brothers are dead. Yes. So Edmund died in battle. Sure. Edward was king and died as king. George was executed for treason under Edward IV's reign. And his mode of death, just an interesting fact, he was drowned in Malmsey. Malmsey is a wine. Well, there's worse ways to go than drowning in wine. (laughs) All right. So this really means that not only is Richard III the heir to the throne at this point, if he illegitimizes all of his nieces and nephews, he's kind of the only one in his family left. Yeah, he is the prime York for this role. Okay. And there's a perfectly good coronation already. And it would be a shame to waste a perfectly planned coronation. It really would be. All that money, all that food. Might as well just get on with it. So accepting the crown only established him as Richard III. (laughs) The jerk. (laughs) And the Actual coronation of Richard and his wife, Anne, took place on July 6, 1483. Only 88 days had passed between Edward IV's death and his brother's usurpation of power. Historians still debate if the usurpation had long been Richard's plan or the consequence of outside influence and the sequence of events leading to the disappearance of his nephews in the tower. Planned or not, Influenced or not, sinister or not, Richard became the most infamous usurping king. So if we think 2020 was a crazy year, 1483, definitely up there with with years that just too much stuff happened in. (laughs) Yes. So I'm, I'm excited for the next section of this story because... There's not a lot known about it, which probably is why it is the most interesting part. It's really the event that cements Richard as evil. Okay. And yet there is no concrete evidence for Richard's involvement. Young Edward is in the Tower of London, and he is later joined by his younger brother, Richard. Not long after his coronation, the servants that they had are dismissed and the boys are withdrawn into their apartments. They are seen occasionally on the tower grounds. And as the summer moves on into autumn, the princes are seen less gradually. And the last confirmed sighting of them is in late September 1483. So basically, even though these boys were in quote-unquote quarantine, they were still allowed to be uh, outside for a minimal amount of time to, to play and to, to run around, but they still had to socially distance themselves from the rest of the area, but they were allowed in their contained space of the Tower of London, whether that be outside or inside. Correct. Yeah. Okay. Look at all these connections we're making to 2020. Who'd have thought it'd be so relevant? <laughs> The accepted accounts of their deaths are from years later during, you guessed it, the Tudor dynasty. The terrible Tudors. The rumors around their cause of death are that the boys were smothered with a feather pillow, drowned in a barrel of Momsey, poisoned, or more. 
There are other versions of their deaths. Death is terrible. All right, continue. (laughs) So the most prominent question is, who did the deed? It's a classic whodunit. And the most obvious perpetrator is Richard III. He's the one that put them in the tower. He had the most to benefit by their deaths. And with them dead, they couldn't be used to overthrow him. Right. So his enemies couldn't come and be like, you're not the true ruler. We have these boys. We're going to take your position by force. If they're dead, there's no one to take him over by force. There's no other person that they could claim to be the rightful ruler. Right. And it also further cements Richard's position because he's got a wife, he's got the throne, and he also has a son. But Richard also has an alibi. At the time of his death, Richard is out of London and far in the north, so he couldn't have physically done the deed himself, but he could have ordered it to be done. Okay. Richard's friend, the Duke of Buckingham, is a possibility, but it's unlikely. If he did, it would have been his last act of loyalty as he went on to betray Richard. Okay. Next is James Tyrell, Richard's servant. Tyrell was sent to the tower in September and was given orders to the constable of the tower, Robert Brackenbury, to leave the keys with him, giving him the opportunity to kill the princes. Okay. In 1502, Tyrell is tortured under Henry VII, and he confesses to the murder of the princes, and he is then pardoned. But there is no original evidence or documentation of his confession. Our knowledge of it comes from Thomas More's history of Richard III and Shakespeare's play. Awesome. I'm happy you mentioned Shakespeare's play because we didn't talk about it yet. I'll mention it more at the end, but... When I told people that we're going to do an episode on Richard III this season, a lot of people assumed that we're going to talk about the play. But Richard III is a real dude, so I'm happy we get to we're talking about his his real life. And Henry VII, also known as Henry Tudor, is going to play a large part in the story in just a moment. So buckle up, everybody! It's about to get crazy. So. What evidence is there that the boys were killed in the tower? What evidence has there been since the Tudor era? About 200 years after the disappearance of the princes, a wooden box containing the skeletal remains of two juveniles is discovered beneath the chapel stairs of the White Tower. And they were attributed to be those of the young princes because their placement in the tower matches accounts of their deaths and burial under a stair. A few years after, they were interned at Westminster Abbey and they stayed in Westminster Abbey until 1933 when they were removed and examined. Measuring certain bones confirmed they belonged to two children around the same age as young Edward and Richard. But this study provided no further insights to the remains and didn't go as far as to determine the gender. And there are currently no plans to conduct further tests on the remains. And if there were, the information it could yield is limited. I mean, that's disappointing, but I, it's understandable why they wouldn't want to continue with that, right? Correct. It, mm-hmm. it, wouldn't, it wouldn't reveal information about the cause of death. It wouldn't prove one way or another who did it, how they did it, when they did it. At this point, this is what we know. We know that Edward IV died. We know that King Richard was supposed to be Lord Protectorate or Regent of his nephews. And then we learn that when that wasn't the case, he kidnapped them, put them into a tower, declared himself king, and then possibly murdered them. Yes. And I think my family's crazy. Sucks. And he was married, so he had an heir. But his heir never becomes king, and I never really heard much of his heir. Did his son pass away? Yes. In the two years that he is king, from 1483 to 1485, Richard goes from uncontested king with an heir and wife to an isolated and depressed man, the last of his line. His wife and son both pass away. Oh, gosh. He's losing political allies in London because he 
was so confident with his allies in the North that the capital is beginning to look for other alternatives to the king. Okay. And he had one adversary, Henry Tudor. Henry Tudor, also known as Henry Seventh. All right. Henry was a descendant of the Lancastrian line, but very, very distantly. If you remember in the early part when we were talking before, we mentioned the War of the Roses and how it was the Yorks versus the Lancasters. Richard is a York. Henry Tudor is kind of a Lancastrian. It's a stretch, but he technically is. Just to quickly show where he is in the line, his grandfather married the widow of a Plantagenet king. Oh my gosh. Yeah, he's like barely a cousin. His father was the half-brother to King Henry VI, who is right before Edward IV. And he is one of the last Lancastrians to survive the Wars of the Roses. Yikes. This is um, a feat of genealogy that they're able to put all of this together. And we're going to be providing in the show notes and also on our social media, a family tree so that you can look at that in your leisure to understand what's happening here. All right. So continue. What happens when two enemies, Henry Tudor and Richard III, finally meet? August 22nd, 1485, the two meet on Bosworth battlefield. And Richard, although he has lost his son, he has lost his wife, he is still a very confident king. He's an experienced soldier and a leader. He's a great tactician. And he still has the stronger claim to the throne. His Mm -hmm. army is bigger. They have more advanced weaponry, such as cannons. Nice. And well, without getting into the nitty gritty... We will link sources to the battle, and this is where Richard meets his gruesome end. Yikes. He had a gruesome entrance into the world, as we mentioned before. So let's talk a little bit about his gruesome end. You know, if content warning, if, if you're squirmish like me, just, just be wary of that. But I am the most squirmish person in the world, so uh, we're in this together. The... Best source there is for understanding the injuries that Richard received on the battlefield is at the King Richard III Visitor Center. There will also be a link in the show notes where you can look at the images of his remains and you can see what injuries were inflicted. Okay. But just to focus on the the death. Sure. Richard had decided the best tactic on the battlefield was to cut through the middle of the skirmish to advance on Henry Tudor. And for an experienced soldier, this might seem the right move. He's got a lot of men. He knows the battlefield. He should be able to cut through. And if he can get one-on-one with Henry Tudor, he is going to win the war. But what happens is he gets stuck in the middle of the skirmish and he is pulled from his horse. And at some point, he loses his helmet. Yikes. That's not he good. He's down on the ground and he is either being pinned down or he's moving, trying to crawl away from the fight. And this is where he receives a blow to the back of his skull, likely by a halberd. And for those who don't know what a halberd is, it is a very tall weapon, somewhat similar to an axe. It's got an axe head on one side, a spike on the other, and (sighs) another spike on top. This would have been a very big, heavy weapon. Jeez Louise. (laughs) So this halberd comes down on the back of his skull and shaves away the bone. Ew, gosh. Ew, I don't like this. Okay. That sucks. And... We know he had to have been on the ground when he receives this injury because the way the armor was built, it is the only way for him to have received an injury to this spot because the armor would have had, the breastplate would have come up to the base of the neck and then the helmet would have fit into the neck piece of the breastplate. Oh gosh. And that's his death. He died on August 22nd, 1485. 
And these are not typical war wounds. This was a battlefield execution. Okay. Every injury that followed his death was done to humiliate him. His body was stripped naked. His possessions were looted. And then he was marched to Leicester where he was put on display for three days. Oh my gosh. And then was buried at the Greyfriars Monastery on August 25th. That's something that always fascinated me about what we consider like the Middle Ages is their comfort with death and how a king specifically being, you know, shown um, in his birthday suit just in the middle of town covered in war wounds. That specifically would have been quite a shock because it's not every day you murder a king. But just in general, the, the public executions until far too recently were relatively normal. And that just in and of itself is so hard to conceptualize. And maybe it's just because I I am very squeamish and I don't like gory things and I don't like scary movies. I just couldn't even imagine walking around the town to be like, oh, there's the dead king. And on this side is the bakery. Like, that's just bizarre to me. Yeah, it's, it's so different. I mean, I executions were forms of entertainment back in the medieval era. I remember learning about execution under the tutors in school when I was living in England as a kid, and I'm probably in third grade, and we're learning about how people would push to the front just so they could get sprayed with blood from the execution. Oh my god. Oh, that's so gross. But at the same time, what's great about the way they teach this history is that they're not shy talking about the gruesome bits of their past. Right. That doesn't happen in the U.S. We romanticize and we we glorify and we, for lack of a better term, we whitewash things so that they seem nicer and easier to learn about. But that's, that's so not true. how things were. That is so true. That's a really great, I guess, comparison. Something I do want to mention is when you're describing the battle itself a little bit, it reminded me of a football game. Those who know me know I have a passing interest in American football. I find it very interesting. And it kind of reminded me of... King Richard is like the defensive end and he's trying to sack the quarterback that is Henry Tudor and he's confident and he's going, he's going to get him. But then he doesn't realize that Henry Tudor is Lamar Jackson and is able to bypass the defensive end to score the touchdown and win the game. So yeah, that was what was going through my head when you were describing the battle. It's great visual for you because you're so squeamish squeamish i wanted to say skirmish but that is not the right word (laughs) so i talked about how his body was humiliated post-mortem he was put on display but the humiliation went just slightly further with his burial so if you've ever visited for those who haven't when you go into a cathedral like westminster abbey Monarchs have these large marble stone tombs over them, and they represent how the monarch was viewed in his time. They represent the wealth of his kingdom. They often show religious iconography or scenes from their life. These are grand markers for the king. Richard III had none of these hallmarks of a royal burial. The one thing he has when he was buried in Leicester is that he was buried in consecrated ground at the the Greyfriars Monastery. But the burial itself was just a dirt hole dug in the choir and his body was just chucked in. Again, no, no robes, no possessions, no tombstone or marker. He is just dug maybe a couple of feet below the floor. His body is put in. It is the dirt is laid back down and the stone floor to the choir is put back on top. Yikes. And that's it. Oh my and gosh. 
He's buried in the choir because it's only accessible to those who live in the monastery. It's a place where they they sing and they worship. And by putting him there, he is physically removed from the people, much like he did with his nephew by putting him in the tower. He is made out of sight and out of mind. Oh, that is so clever. His loyal followers in the north can't access him. They can't unbury him. They can't claim this isn't Richard's death. They right. can't rebury him in a city where he was favored with these royal. Right. With the pomp and circumstance that goes into a, a royal funeral. Exactly. He's just left there. There is record, though, that in 1495, Henry VII did put a tomb over him, did give him a monument of sorts. But that has never been seen. And. I was going to say, the monasteries and to the Tudors, the the dynasty that would take over after Richard III, have their own complicated history, and Henry VIII would go on to destroy most of them, correct? Exactly, and that's what happened to Greyfriars and Leicester, is it is destroyed during the Reformation, and that is when history loses Richard III, up until the Reformation, it is known that he is buried in Leicester. It is known that he was at the Greyfriars Monastery. Again, no one can access him because of his location in the monastery. But once the monastery comes down, there's no written documentation for where he is. There's no understanding as years go on and the ground is reused what the outline of the monastery was. As Lester develops and is rebuilt upon, you lose where the choir was. Right. It loses significance. And as hundreds of years go on, I guess the story through oral history, because I guess at that point you only have really oral history when it comes to where he is. You lose that and it, it becomes altered and stories are changed. Just one example of how it the story of Richard III has changed is it used to be taught in schools in Leicester that his body had been removed before the destruction of the monastery and thrown into the nearby river, the River Soar. And as we connect this to the beginning of this episode, where we talked about a documentary, that wasn't the case. So let's connect his story to the documentary that you watched and I watched yeah, let's round let's round this out. Yeah. So one question I want to ask this going into this discussion on Richard III's discovery is were there supernatural forces guiding the 2012 excavation? Ooh. It sounds like an absurd claim. One for conspiracy theorists and ghostbusters, but There were some unexplainable coincidences during his discovery. So the movement to search for Richard III is spearheaded by the Richard III Society, which is a dues-paying membership for people who are enthusiastic about the history of Richard III, who are proponents of the white legend of Richard III, the more favorable, favorable legend. Their main mission is to reinterpret Richard III in a more either favorable or more accurate light. Okay. And one particular member of this Richard III society is a woman named Philippa Langley. Okay. And Philippa Langley at the time is a writer working on a script about Richard III. And she was the driving force for this excavation. She was on site when the discovery was made. Prior to the groundbreaking, she visited the site, which is at the time a Leicester City Municipal Car Park. Okay. And she's walking the ground. And in a particular spot, she's overcome with a surge of emotion, causing her to cry. She felt, or rather she knew, that she was standing over Richard III's grave. Oh my gosh. The actual breaking of the ground had been delayed due to weather concerns. It was originally scheduled to start the second week of August 2012, but actually began on the 25th. 
And on that day, archaeologists discovered walls, which confirmed it was a wealthy medieval building. They discovered a burial that day. And while they did not know at the time, they had just uncovered the leg bones of Richard III. But wait, there's more. (laughs) Because of this delay in the start date, it meant that Richard III, buried on August 25th, 1485, was uncovered on August 25th. 2012. Chills. I got chills. (laughs) One final unexplainable coincidence is that his location in the parking lot or car park, as they do, they have reserved spaces. And in this one, a reserved space was identifiable with a large red R painted on it. Get out of town. It was under one of these spots that Richard III was discovered. Oh my gosh, that's insane. Now I know why you asked if there are supernatural forces, because that's kind of crazy. Were all of these clues just there to lead us to Richard, or are they unexplainable coincidences? Yeah. Gosh, the world is so crazy. And I guess with that, from his brutal beginning to his brutal end, we can say the end. So after we talked about this story, there's a few things I I kind of want to mention and bring up and we can talk about it a little bit. But first, I was first introduced to this story via Shakespeare. As avid listeners of the show know, I am, was, is a theater kid. And so I knew Richard III from Shakespeare. But I always knew him as a hunchback. It's, was he a hunchback? We didn't mention that. Well... Yes and no. Okay. I say I say no because there is no evidence outside of the Tudor paintings of Richard which show him having a hunched back or one shoulder to be higher than the other that he walked with a hunch. But when he was uncovered in 2012, it was determined that he had scoliosis. His um. spine is sort of shaped like an S or a question mark. Okay, cool. Me too. Me too. Twinsies. Twinning with Richard III. Scoliosis buddies. Historians don't really believe that he would have had a very visible hunch. It is possible that his shoulders may have been unbalanced, but he would have been able to be as physically active as anybody in that time period, which is also shown through his military experience. It is also very possible, though, that he would have experienced a lot of pain doing these things. I was going to say, with all that heavy equipment that he would have been wearing, that as was historically appropriate, and all that physical activity, I mean... With my back, it's it can be very painful to just walk around for an extended amount of time. So props to you, Richard III, if you're out there watching over us. Then there's a question of how did that story come to be? Because yeah. very few people have access to the body of a king when he's alive. Right, right. You know, who would have known about his hunchback to get this story of him being a hunchback out there? Right. The people who would have had access to him were his his wife and those responsible for dressing him. But again, it's likely that these people would have been very loyal to him. They wouldn't have had reason to talk about Richard III being crippled and hunched and physically deformed, which again, the Tudors would later use as an example of his internal wickedness deforming him physically. Right. What it, however, it is possible that when his body was stripped from Bos at Bosworth Battlefield, he was put on display. You may have been able to see his spine. No, but but even with all of that, you know, the battle wounds, it was probably even more pronounced. You know, if he was in battle especially and I know when I'm when I'm in pain with my back, I my my uh, hunch is a little bit more pronounced too. So probably with all of those circumstances around his dead body, it looked more dramatic than it actually was in life. Right. So it's very possible that that image of him as this crippled or hunched person came from when he was on display. But again, there's no 
Yeah, we will never know for sure. No author wrote down on the day that I saw his body in Leicester. I saw that he was, you know, I wanted to say that I don't like using the word deformity because he was fully physically right. Well, capable. Scoliosis is just, I mean, I have it. Most of the women in my family have it. I'm sure our listeners, some of them have it. And this is your back. This is, I guess, curvy back. It's just life. Again, the King Richard the Visitor Center in Leicester has a really good display on scoliosis and tying it to other famous people. So the lead singer, I believe it was the Sex Pistols, was also so had scoliosis. You know who's done a lot of work for scoliosis? It's Princess Eugenie. If you're keeping up with the royal family, she got married in, what, 2019, I feel like. And her wedding dress... Uh, showed her scoliosis scar and she's she's really a big proponent of you know ending the stigma against scoliosis and helping people get resources if they need to get the surgery so there's a royal connection for you something else i want to mention before we get to where you can learn more about the story and more factual ways bianca has been great by providing us so many resources she's a brilliant person so we got some awesome resources if you're into the more fictionalized version of history, which, hey, we all love some good uh, historical fiction. No hate on that at all. I personally enjoyed watching the White Queen, the White Princess, Spanish Princess. I haven't started the second season of Spanish Princess yet. Those are loosely historical tellings of the War of the Roses, starting with Richard the third's brother Edward, and I think season two of The Spanish Princess goes into more detail of Henry VIII's reign. So if you're interested in having a fun version of that time in history, I suggest that series on stars. I'll put the link in the show notes. But also Game of Thrones. Really quickly, if you're familiar with the Game of Thrones, Bianca, just list off some Game of Thrones comparisons. We have an article that'll go in more depth of this as well that we'll link. Yeah, so the biggest comparison is the the names of the feuding families in Game of Thrones. So for the Wars of the Roses, we mentioned that you have the Yorks versus the Lancasters. And in Game of Thrones, you have the Starks against the Lannisters. So just there, you've got this similarity in the names. And there are some characters from the show that loosely connect to historical figures from the War of the Roses. So the he didn't really mention him much throughout the episode, but Richard III's father, Richard, Duke of York, was the patriarch of the Yorkists. But he is very similar in character to Ned Stark. And in Game of Thrones, it all kind of starts with this reign of the Mad King. And under the Mad King, these other families begin to war for who should be king instead. In the Wars of the Roses, Henry VI was loosely described as a Mad King, but for very different reasons. Henry VI would go into these periods of physical and mental incapacity. And historians haven't quite pinpoint what it was that would cause this, but it would last for months and months at a time. And it was during these periods that Henry would be undone or dethroned by Edward IV. And there's a thin connection between Joffrey and Tommen with the princes in the tower in that the princes in the tower were named illegitimate in order to secure Richard III's claim to the throne. And so were Joffrey and Tommen. All right. So if you're into Game of Thrones, I feel like Game of Thrones came from being like the biggest thing on television to uh, no one talking about it anymore. But if you binged it during quarantine and you want some uh, War of the Roses connections, we'll definitely link an article. You can also just Google it. But the article we will be linking um, is by a future guest on the podcast. So you should definitely check that out. And I guess it's time for us to conclude with some more academic sources for you to really delve in to the War of the Roses and Richard III himself. And Bianca, if you want to plug any projects you're working on, now's the time to do that. Well, my my current research is actually very different from medieval history, but I will 
plug a couple of authors that I've read that I really liked for this topic in this period. Um, I always recommend Dan Jones's books. He's got so many different books about the medieval period and his book on the Plantagenets and then on the Wars of the Roses is a really interesting read. His writing really brings these stories and battle scenes to life. And if you read one and then the other, you get a really good understanding of what led to the Wars of the Roses. Okay. And then also I'm going to recommend Chris Skidmore's Richard III, Brother, Protector, King. He is a historian and also an MP, which for, for us Americans, an MP is a member of parliament. And his book does a really good job of spending time on the period where Richard was protector and in his time as king. Because even as we did in our episode, we talk a little bit about his his birth. We talk a little bit about his relationship with his brother, death and his burial and his discovery. But he was only king for two years. And it's really interesting to learn the nuances of what happened when he was king. And this book does a really good job of showing that. Jones's book is great for an overall understanding of the Wars of the Roses. But if you want to learn more about Richard III and not one that's focused on vilifying him or one that's so focused on reinterpreting him favorably, Chris Gidmore's is a really good book for a sort of neutral understanding of him. Awesome. Well, this is great, and we have so many links that we're going to put on the show notes. I just want to, again, plug our show notes. Guys, you got to look at our show notes. We're a bunch of nerds working on this podcast, and we love finding cool resources for you, so please check that out. Just one more quick, interesting fact for all of us nerds. If you want to learn, if you don't really have that much of an interest in Richard III yet, he is an ancestor of... Benedict Cumberbatch. And if that doesn't get you excited about Richard III, I don't know what will. And if you want to know how they're related, go to the King Richard III Visitor Center website, look at the research done for the DNA testing, and figure it out. I love it. All right. Thank you so much, Bianca, for coming on, doing this show with me. It's always a joy to talk to you, and I'm excited to see all your academic successes in the future. Thank you. Once Upon a Time, a storytelling podcast was produced by Talia Smith and Emily Joba. You can buy us a coffee and support this podcast at buymeacoffee.com slash onceuponatimepc. Our guest today was Bianca Bellafiore, and our story was Richard III. Our featured artist this week was Brooke Winters. You can check out her work on our Instagram and in our show notes. Music is Photos of Murder by John Bartman. Our Instagram is at a storytelling podcast, and our email is a storytelling podcast at gmail.com. Like us on Facebook too. You can listen in on Spotify, Apple Podcasts, Stitcher, or wherever you get your podcasts. Links to all of our resources are in the show notes and on our website. The end.